I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today's guest blows me away with his wisdom and determination and how he sets himself as an example for so many of us to follow. In April 2017, when Ed Jackson was still a professional rugby player, he jumped in the shallow end of a swimming pool and broke his neck. As a result, he suffered a spinal cord injury that left him paralyzed from the neck down, with doctors telling him that he will never walk again. Through sheer determination and intensive focus, driven by Ed's desire to not be a burden to anyone, he reached the summit of mountains within a year of his operation. He didn't just walk. He climbed mountains. He inspires others to overcome their fear by detailing how his goals are achieved and how goals in general can be achieved, no matter how impossible they seem. Ed's life-altering experience, I think, has provided him with an extraordinary ability to motivate. I will tell you, he motivated me for sure. And I now feel that He just somehow convinces me that nothing is impossible. And I hope that this conversation will convince you too that nothing actually is impossible. If you put your mind to something, you will get there. So I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I hope you're going to enjoy it and find some inspiration in it. Ed Jackson. So I normally would do a quick, good introduction of my guest. The more I read your story and watch you speak and so on, the more I realized I wouldn't do you justice at all. Actually, I would love for you to introduce your story to our listeners, starting from rugby and where you were in rugby. I think it's mind-blowing. It is really inspiring. And the way you tell it is just, it gets my heart every time. So go ahead. I will stay silent and you take us through what happened. Okay, so I suppose just to give a little bit of context, I am from the southwest of England. I'm 33 years old. I keep forgetting how old I am. Once I got past 30, I kind of lost count or I've deliberately started to lose count. But <laughs> yes, I'm 30 something. 30 something. I probably will be yeah. for the rest of my life, hopefully. Exactly. I'm 30 something too, like just at 24, but I'm 30 something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. 30 something. And so I was born in, into a part of England, which is uh, very into the rugby. And so it was naturally something I did from a, from a young age. I was a big fan of our hometown club, Bath, which is one of the sort of more famous clubs in the UK. And I ended up being born and being quite big, I suppose, compared to the other kids my age, reasonably naturally sort of athletic. And so that was the sport I went into. And luckily enough, I was good enough to turn professional after I left school. So I captained England at 16s, under 18s, and then ended up um, 
signing for my hometown club Bath when I was when I was 18 which which kind of was a complete dream come true you're living your dream every young boy wants to be a professional sport dream of being a professional sportsman when they grow up or a lot do especially if they're if they're sporty so it was an amazing start I had a reasonably successful 10-year career as a professional rugby player played for the top teams in in England and in Wales my career was sort of littered with injuries a little bit so there were setbacks along the way I nearly had to retire at 21 because of shoulder operations and things like that but I came out the other side of it it didn't end gracefully and I'll get onto that in a minute but at the same time I look back on my career as I'm really happy with it I did reach the pinnacle you know like playing international rugby senior international caps but I had a great 10 years met some amazing people had some great experiences and I feel very grateful to have done it in the first place so I was 27 and I just had another shoulder injury so I was recovering from that and this is back in 2000 god I'm getting my ages wrong again I was 28 not that it matters but it was 2017 April 2017 and I was recovering from a shoulder injury and I went back to my parents house for the weekend first hot sunny day of the year went to a family friend's house to have a pool. Obviously, that's the first thing you do when it gets sunny, you find your nearest mate with a swimming pool. And um, <laughs> it was one of those feature pools. It had like a rock fall in one side and a waterfall in the other side. Not something we usually see in the UK. It's more of a, probably more of a, an American thing, actually. But it was a pool I hadn't been in before, wasn't familiar with. Went down after lunch, took my T-shirt off, and just dived in where the waterfall hit the water. And because of the ripple, I couldn't see how deep it was, but I just assumed it was deep. I think my subconscious, you see waterfall, you see steep rock face. And at the time I was 18 and a half stone, don't know what that is in pounds, about 230 pounds or something. And, you know, as a professional rugby player, I was carrying a lot of weight. And what I thought was about eight feet deep turned out to only be three feet deep. So I smacked my head on the bottom of the pool incredibly hard and... I'd hit my head hard a lot of times before. I'd kind of done it for a living, I suppose, as a rugby player. But I knew, I knew this time it was, it was pretty serious knock to the head. But I just thought, look, I'll stand up, I'll check and see if I'm bleeding. So hopefully I don't bleed in their pool, and it'll be fine. But it was when I went to try and move to stand up that's when I really realised something was wrong because I couldn't move. I had a bit of movement in my right arm, a little bit in my left leg, but apart from that, I was literally underwater almost at the bottom, three feet down, staring at the surface. And that confusion as to why I couldn't move, because it's a very alien feeling. I've always had control of my limbs, most of us have, and then all of a sudden nothing's happening. Quickly turned to panic of, oh no, I, you know, I could drown here. Um, I hope someone's seen. Fortunately, they had. My dad and one of my mates came over, rushed over, picked me to the surface. My dad's a retired doctor, which you know turns out to be very lucky because... With spinal cord injuries especially, what I'd done is I'd dislocated my C6 and C7 vertebrae at the bottom of my neck. The impact was so hard on the top of my head that the disc between had exploded and a shard of that disc had cut cut my spinal cord in half. So your spinal cord's about 12 millimetres thick. I've got about six millimetres left. So I I had an unstable dislocated neck and my spinal cord was kind of in shreds a little bit so what happened to me after the accident was going to be very important to my recovery I suppose you know in hindsight and a lot of damage that's done in these situations is actually done after the accident in the way the person's handled so any slight move and I wouldn't have blamed you know if it was just all my mates there and we were on holiday and people were drunk or whatever I wouldn't have blamed them for just pulling me out of the pool because you obviously don't want someone to drown but fortunately my dad knew there must be something wrong with my neurology so they kept me still and floated me in the pool ambulance came 
what I thought was a 15 minute journey to hospital. And at this time, you know, I'm, I'm in shock, but at the same time, I know it's serious. I can remember just apologizing to, to my wife profusely because I knew the implications of this. Well, it could be, it's more than just the end of my rugby career. You know, this could mean a life of, you know, without being independent. And, and I just knew it was serious at the time, but I was still in shock. So I was sort of going through the motions a little bit. And I just remember feeling a bit sleepy in the ambulance and just being like, oh, you know, I know how far it is. In my head, I could map it. It was my local area. 50-minute journey, I'll just nod off. And I remember them trying to keep me awake. Didn't think anything more of it until I got to hospital. But I've since been told, my dad eventually told me a year later that they were waiting for two and a half hours at the hospital for the ambulance to do the 15-minute journey because what had happened is they'd had to pull over three times to resuscitate me. So oh my God. Like I had... That puts a different understanding that puts a different spin in a different context on, and not in a negative way. You know, I think my dad waited a year to tell me because he was waiting for me to be probably in the mental when he thought I was in the mental space to deal with something like that. But contemplating that actually has changed my life even more. You know, I realize how lucky I am to not just be independent and limping around, but to be here at all. So it was a very serious incident, but luckily. I had an amazing surgeon who was on call that night, Dr. Neil Brewer, seven hour surgery where through a microscope, he picked all the bits of disc out of my spinal cord, put a cage in my neck, realigned everything. And the next thing I knew, I woke up in intensive care, but I had no movement or sensation from the shoulders down. So after six days of no movement and sensation, and in that situation, I didn't have any power around my rib cage, my diaphragm, anything like that. So I couldn't breathe for myself, couldn't wash myself, couldn't feed myself, couldn't go to the toilet for myself. So there was this big thing going on with obviously the physical issues, but the knock-on effect that that was having on me mentally, that loss of identity, that sort of hopelessness, anxiety over uncertainty. And I probably went through some mental processes over those first few nights or had thoughts that I'd never want to think again. And and I've been very fortunate that I haven't suffered heavily mentally with what's happened or before or I don't have a history of it. But I do understand I have a much better appreciation for it now and do understand it because of the first four or five days in intensive care. And But after six days of probably being in a victim mindset and feeling sorry for myself and being angry at why me, you know, I don't deserve this and all of these sorts of things, the surgeon came in and said, we've done your... Asia tests, which is the American Spinal Injury Assessment, and it involves hundreds of pinpricks and temperature checks. They basically check all your neural tracts all over your body. And after six, they do it every 24 hours, and after six days, they can make a they make a prediction about an assessment and a prediction about your outcome. And then he said, look, Ed, you need to realize your category is your A1, which is the highest level of spinal cord injury, and we're not expecting you to walk again. We're hoping you might be able to get use of your arms back so that you can be independent. And obviously hearing that news, it was like it was like getting punched very hard in the stomach, like it was like getting winded. But at the same time, I had a strange reaction to it, I suppose, because my mum and my wife were in the room. And I just remember looking at them, they sort of burst into tears. And I think all of us had been thinking it. It was pretty obvious, given that I hadn't had any movement or sensation return after that length of time. But no one had verbalised it before. But for me, it almost drew a line in the sand. And it was that word independence that made me think, this isn't just about you. Like, stop feeling sorry for yourself. In six months' time or a year's time, if you look back at the situation you've been in 
and you haven't done everything you could to get better and now it's affecting lots of other people's lives you won't be able to live with yourself but in six months or a year's time i think i said six months at the start if you look back and you go right you've done everything you can you've really tried but you're still in this hospital bed at least it was out of your hands you know you've controlled your controllables and you've done the best you can and it, if it's affecting other people's lives now you couldn't do anything about that so that was kind of the decision i made and that mindset change changed everything for me i just then spent every waking moment of visualizing wiggling my fingers and my toes and nothing was happening but i would just stare at my toes for hours on end and just imagine them moving trying to move them and it was really weird because you feel detached from your body you're like a head on a pillow but you see your legs and arms but they don't feel like they're yours but then only 48 hours later after um the surgeon told me gave me that news my toe wiggled and i remember it being probably the most like i don't know powerful moment of my life which is ridiculous thing to say considering all you're doing is wiggling your toe but it reduces a room of adults to tears you talk about the sort of the bar shifting to what what keeps people happy all of a sudden my my wiggling toe was but it was hope it was a sign that all the effort that was being put in but also it was a sign that there was something still connected below the level of the injury there was an opportunity to actually have some improvement and i was no by no means out of the woods at all but it was something to hold on to and it motivated everyone and bit by bit over the the next well it's still ongoing now four and a half years but four months in hospital bit by bit my body came back to me i was in a wheelchair for the best part of a year and now i'm at a point where i still have lots of underlying medical issues because of the spinal cord injury sort of bladder bowel sexual function issues temperature regulation spasms and movement my left side doesn't really work properly i have something called brown saccade syndrome so functionally my left side's very poor but has good sensation and my right side is functionally good but has no sensation so i don't feel temperature or pain on that side so it's not easy to live with a spinal cord injury but i realize how lucky i am to have got to the stage that i've got to and i think the fact that i had accepted the fact that i would be happy in a wheelchair as long as i could get myself back to independence meant that everything past that has been a bonus and that's an interesting thing to ruminate on because if someone had told me for example that i wasn't going to be able to use my left hand properly for the rest of my life before that probably would have devastated me on its own but now that doesn't bother me at all because in the scheme of things it puts perspective on the whole situation and and i can say that thanks to a lot of amazing people you know getting better from an injury like this is not just an individual effort it's a huge team effort and i'm only here because of the strength of my support network and thanks to them i'm now in a place where i'm loving my life again i feel i'm doing a lot of things that fill me with purpose i'm doing a lot of things that i never imagined i would do all because of this supposedly terrible change I'm speechless. I I have a million questions. Like this is mind blowing because I think the point to start at is that wiggling toe thing. I mean, how many of us wiggle our toes all the time and we just don't see this as a blessing because maybe the supermarket closed too early and I don't have my I don't know uh, gin and tonic or whatever. I don't know. I mean, it's crazy how we forget the basic blessings that people all of us have right and then when you lose them suddenly you move i'm guessing you know the week before you were planning your 
when your shoulder will recover, when you'll be back on the field, all of the plans for this. And now all you wanted from life is, can I wiggle my toe? And when you wiggle your toe, which I think is mind blowing, the rest of your body is still not working, but that toe thing is like, that's, that's enough. That's like, this is a celebration in itself. What's the psyche that goes into that? How can people make that a habit? I think it does come down to perspective. Of course it does, because the bar had moved and, and me wiggling my toe then all of a sudden meant way more to me than getting back on the pitch for the next game because the importance that was attached to it. So it's not the actual thing that's happening on paper. It's the importance to attach to it. It's the way you look at it that makes a difference. And it's kind of that saying perception is reality. And to me, that was the biggest thing in my universe at that time was trying to get something to wiggle. And, and to, if I'm honest with you, I didn't think it was going to happen. I just knew that if I didn't try, I wouldn't be able to live with myself when it didn't happen. So when it did happen, it completely caught everyone off guard. It caught me off guard. And really, that was the start of my <laughs> journey of, of changing my perception completely on the, the power of the mind and the connection between the mind and the body and how important it was to be motivated and or try and stay motivated and look after my brain first to then for my body to follow rather than try and fix the physical problem so that then I would be happier. I think it was back to front initially. Yeah, it's the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. But to answer your question, it was all about perspective and it was just my view on that situation at the time and how much that meant to me. And I think that's important now for me. I use that moving forward. It's understanding, like you said, people lose sight of the ability to wiggle a toe and it's only until you lose the ability to wiggle a toe that you realize how lucky you were to be able to do it in the first place i spent nearly a year in a, in a wheelchair and one of the first things i did after i left hospital is i actually went to new york with my wife i managed to get discharged get a discharge note from the surgeon because one of my friends had bought me tickets to see fleetwood mac and oh, they're the my man. favorite band this is the man that friend that's I, I want to be that man's friend. No, this is it. Yeah. I respect your taste in music tremendously, just so that you know. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. But it was a dream come true for me. So basically, he bought that to me while I was still flat on my back in intensive care as motivation oh, I love five this. months later. And sure enough, we got there. But I was, you know, it was in a bad way, in a sense, in a wheelchair. But negotiating Manhattan for three days, by that point, I was already in the mindset of, you only live once, you know, you've just got to experience everything. You've got to go for it. So I was turning down the sort of black SUVs with the big boots to put the wheelchair in. And I was like, no, we're going on the subway and all of these sorts of things that my, my wife was tearing her hair out at. But I'm so glad I did because I have a completely new appreciation for my legs. You know, people in a wheelchair, you know, it's not easy living your life in a wheelchair, especially when you've got limited function with your upper body as well. And I think everyone should spend a month in a wheelchair at some point in their life because it will make them feel a lot more grateful for being able to walk to the car in the morning. Oh, my God. I absolutely think this is a fascinating idea. Like, I think it puts everything in perspective. If you really live in a wheelchair once in your life, everything else becomes easy, you know? Yeah. It just puts things in perspective. You mentioned the idea of, of not expecting this to happen. This is the core of my, my work on what I call the happiness equation is that our perception of life, our happiness really is just a function of events minus expectations. So, so the fact that I don't expect to be able to ever move again, when I wiggle my toe, that basically is 
beating my expectations. It's like so much better than I expected, even though if it's not a big thing, you know, it's still much better than what I expected. Yeah, exactly. So, so do you believe that it's, it's, it, it's, it's right to lower our expectations? I mean, should we expect less from life? Would that make us happier? I think lower expectations, yes, definitely. That is a way of doing it, but also it just increased gratitude. So change the focus. So you can still, yeah, you're right. The word expect is a dangerous one because you can, yes, you can hope for things, but if you feel like you deserve things to happen and like expect things to happen, that's a dangerous place to be. But for me, it's about shifting focus. And I used to spend my whole life being annoyed about that person who was getting the contract I wanted or how come they're earning more money than me or why have they got selected in front of me and, and looking at other people and feeling annoyed that I didn't have what they had. And now that focus has shifted to feeling grateful for what I have. And um, one of the most powerful realizations for me was my family and my friends, because I'd lost everything in terms of my identity, my body. I was a head on a pillow in my world in my head at that time, I'd lost everything. Of course, now in thinking back, I had lost hardly anything because my brain was still the same. You know, and I spent time on a, mm. spent time in a neuro ward where people had had traumatic brain injuries. And trust me, the amount of gratitude comes from not having a brain injury because families were going in to see, see their sons, wives, daughters with brain injuries and they'd actually lost the person because they were a different human. And I felt so, so grateful for that in the first place. But yeah, I mean, now it's just feeling really grateful for what I do have, not being angry about what I don't have. And I think it's because that bar of expectation was lowered so much in the first place. And if this is your base level of happiness, it's easier to add bricks on top. But if you expect to be this happy the whole time, you're setting yourself up for a fall. I am very inspired by what you said about this wasn't about me. I think you said two things that are very profound. One is it was an external focus. So you were lying there, as you say, head on a pillow, so much uncertainty around your life, but your concern was not yourself only. You were also concerned of what does that mean to people I love, which I think is fascinating. The other part of this is the idea of, but at least I would look back at it and say, I have tried. Now, this is really, really, I think this is very special. I don't know how to develop this, but tell me first about that external focus. How do you do that when you're in such a terrible situation and you're still thinking about others? You know, where do you get that from? I'm not sure. Um, and it wasn't immediate. I think the first few days I was more thinking about myself and what this meant for me, but also it was thinking about myself in a way that, okay, maybe my wife could leave me now. You know, so that's still, uh -huh. so I'm thinking about her, but it's still the self, I'm still thinking about me, you know, I've lost my job. And, but then that switch came when, when the word independence was mentioned and it was a conscious decision to change my, change my why, if you like, the motivation to do it for myself, to get back on my feet, obviously wasn't enough for me to be putting in the effort it was going to take for me to get that toe to wiggle. But as soon as I realized I wasn't just doing it for me and I was doing it for others, and I already felt guilty about the mistake I'd made diving in the pool. And I thought, look, if this is going to affect lots of other people's lives, at least make sure that it's because of the accident and not because of your lack of effort. And as soon as I changed oh. that sort of feeling and being scared of 
I was almost scared of that situation. So I visualized that situation six months time, knowing that I'd cut corners and now having to be bed bath by my mum. I just used that to drive me and, and then that became the motivation. So I don't know, a lot of these processes, thought processes, realizations that came through my recovery were completely subconscious. I think it wasn't based on research, reading, interest in psychology, philosophy. It was my brain, I think, the human instinct defending itself, you know, whether it be reframing or finding more motivation from something else. These processes were all happening naturally. And of course, when you go back and read into it about post-traumatic growth and victim mindset but you know versus active agent all of these sorts of things it's real and it exists and there's mm. science behind it but at the time i didn't have a clue it was just unfolding so how is your life now obviously you're not playing rugby anymore anyway you were getting old so let's just put it this way yeah you, exactly. You know, <laughs> exactly so right so how is your life now i mean my life is nothing like i ever expected it would be so i now work for Channel 4, which is one of the main channels in the UK on the media side of, of rugby. So I'm in broadcasting. I'm actually going out to Tokyo for the Paralympics I if I ever get released from Iceland. So I'll be, good. <laughs> I'll be going out there in a few days' time, hopefully. And the main thing, the main place my energy is put is in my charity. So Millimeter to Mountains. I started a charity a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago, with my wife and one of my friends. And it was based around... I set myself the challenge of climbing at the highest mountain in Wales, which is called Snowdon, which isn't very high. It's a big hill, effectively. But the fact that I was still using a wheelchair most of the time made it a very daunting prospect. And the reason I did that was, firstly, to repay the charities that supported me since I left hospital. Secondly, to give myself something to focus on and work towards. Because normally when I was injured in rugby, even if it was a long-term injury, I had another game or a new season to aim for. You could put your pin in the diary and go, right, I'm going to go through these processes and I'll get to that point. So it's easy to stay sane. But for this, it was, we don't know how far you're going to get. It's going to take the rest of your life. Just keep working. And then, you know, it's difficult to motivate yourself without those goals in place. So the mountains were there for that. But also to send a message to all the other people in hospital who've been given a negative or guarded prognosis like I had, that you still have hope, right? You can only recover to within the scope of your injury. But if you don't believe that you can get to the top end of that, then you won't. And there's a big issue with the language used in hospital of not offering hope. They always err on the side of caution and negativity because they don't want to open themselves up to litigation. But the problem is if, if the individual, the patient isn't motivated, especially when it's something that's long-term rehabilitation, then that's going to have the most damaging effect. So I just wanted to send a message to people that Ed's been told he can't walk again and then he's climbing up a mountain. But when I did it, I opened it up to anyone who wanted to come and join in on social media. And I thought maybe a couple of people might turn up, but there were 70 people on the start line, all of who I didn't know, which was just an unbelievable thing in, in itself. And we ended up climbing this mountain and having the most amazing weekend. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. But the sense of purpose I got back from that process was the first time I felt of any use since my accident. I really found it hard feeling so useless and feeling like such a burden. People having to feed me, wash me, do everything for me. You know, I'm not working anymore. It was difficult. And then all of a sudden I saw other people benefiting from this supposedly terrible situation and I clung on to that. And like I said before, I think this was a process of me healing myself as much as me trying to help other people. Starting the charity was 
based on how it made me feel to help others. And that was stumbled across just by chance. And now we take people away who are also suffering with their mental health because of trauma, whether that be physical, like spinal cord injuries like me, or life-changing injuries, or mental. You know, we take people with PTSD away, anxiety, severe anxiety, take them away to the mountains, take them outside to help break them out of that rut. But then I also realized that the real reason I am where I am today isn't because of climbing mountains you know that helps it's because of the, my support network and I almost felt guilty that other people don't have a support network like that some people don't have any support network so we want to offer that to other people as well so we fund things like life coaching retraining work experience and, and to try and really get people's lives back on track so that's where my passion lies public speak you know public speak to businesses as well around resilience and change management but all of the, any one of those single things, I would have said there is no way I would ever do that. You know, if I was five years ago when I was rugby player, not just because I wouldn't want to, because I might have wanted to, but I wouldn't be capable of doing any of those things, you know, like starting a charity or even speaking in front of a room with 500,000 people in, I'd be like, no way. And I think the lesson there is we pigeonhole ourselves. You know, we have all these limiting beliefs, whether we create that narrative about ourselves or society creates it for us, but actually it's a load of rubbish. You can kind of do whatever you want if you put the effort into it and if you believe in it and if you're driven enough to do it. And you believe this will keep getting better? I mean, more and more? Do you have another pin in the map for something that you want to do in a couple of years' time? The strange thing is that actually I've kind of removed that pressure from myself. I was always terrified of not knowing what the future held when I played rugby because I knew the end was coming because if there's one thing sure about professional sport is it ends at a reasonably young age. But I'd almost bury my head in the sand because change is terrifying. But now I kind of fallen into the process of leaning on my values, trying to stick to the values that I want to have and are working on, whether that be you know honesty, work ethic, passion, whatever it might be, and then let the world unfold in front of me. And by removing that, now I have no fear of the future. Someone asked me where I'm going to be in two years' time or five years' time. I say, I don't know. And that really excites me. Whereas before, it's like, I don't know, but that terrifies me. And I think I've had to do that a little bit because I'm doing so many things that aren't within my, are alien to me, if you will. You know, if I'd started charities before and run them through, I might have a better idea of the roadmap. But almost it's like the naivety is deliberate. I quite want to keep that because it's allowing me to put more energy into the present and the situation I'm in at that time and also allowing me to be more flexible to move and change as as, as my situation changes you know my recovery is still changing where I'm going to be the things I'm doing who knows but I think if you can keep happy and keep positive and keep moving forward actually all of these things have started progressing quicker because maybe I don't know I'm easier to be around or you know, I, I'm <laughs> yeah. not sure what it is, but that's kind of the process that, that I'm taking at the moment. So this is fascinating. It's exactly where I am in life. As a matter of fact, I believe both are needed. So again, my personal life had a lot of target setting and achievement and progress in it. And now I'm, I actually call the year 2021 my year of flow. So basically I'm completely submitting to the fact that perhaps the intelligence of the universe is a little better than mine. And, you know, knowing that some of the most difficult situations in my life have made my life what it is today, which I wouldn't trade for anything. You suddenly start to say, hey, when that happened, you had a very different plan, you smart you, and it forced you on a different trajectory. And that trajectory is actually wonderful. 
it's lovable, it is enjoyable, it's, it really fits you more, and it's maybe you should stop being so smart, right? Maybe you should just flow with life, and I think that's fascinating. I mean, it is, it's difficult, though, for someone like me, and probably for someone like you, which has always been driven and sportive and athletic and so on, it's not the easiest thing to go like, my brain is saying go left, but somehow my intuition is saying go right and fine, I'll go right. You know, it's just not easy sometimes. No. And it's scary as well, right? It really is. And, and I suppose it's more difficult for some people than others. You know, people have more responsibilities, you know, families to feed. And, but I think if you are in a position where you can fall into that state a bit more, you'll end up doing things you love more because subconsciously you'll end up putting more energy into them. Whereas before you couldn't because you had this deadline to hit or that target to hit. Interesting. It's like a blindfold of some kind, right? It's like, it's basically you're being, you forced yourself to run forward like a horse without seeing whatever else, what other opportunities are there. But then you remove the blindfolds and you, there is so much more and so many directions you can go into. Yeah. Yeah. I, lo- I love that idea of having a year of flow. And I think that's, I suppose, for people in certain stages of their career, that could be a really worthwhile. If they're in a position, I don't know, whether it be financially or with their family or sort of their situation where they can see themselves having a year of flow, I think it would be an amazing way to realign your life and understand yeah. which direction to go next. Yeah. The challenge in my mind now is that I'm guessing, I'm just guessing that 2022 will be my year of flow as well. So it's like, I like this. <laughs> it's really, it's yeah, really, yeah. I mean, the fact that I'm here in the Dominican Republic really is the result of four or five events in a row that I literally didn't expect a few days before I booked my ticket. And then simply I said, okay, life seems to be pointing in that direction. Let's go and see what's there. And I'm, I'm sure there will be something amazing. I don't know. I think that life is so much more rich when you don't, set a target and then measure how far you came to the target or, you know, if you've missed it or overachieved it. It's full of surprises if you're just exploring, you know, walking around and seeing where life takes you, really. So tell me about Lucky. How is Lucky going? Why did you choose the name Lucky? Oh, do you know what? It's, um, it was actually someone else who picked up on the fact that... So I started a blog in hospital. It was actually just voice notes originally. Alexa became my best friend when I couldn't move. <laughs> so, like, in it's, it's, I was telling her to play music for me all the time, mostly Fleetwood Mac and Bob Marley to get me through. But it was. I respect your taste in music. I just have to interrupt <laughs> you to say that. Go on, go on. Now. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, there's nothing like a bit of Bob Marley when you're going through a life changing oh, yeah. crisis, honestly. Oh, yeah. But, um, I would, in the evening, it became a mind dump for me. So I was keeping almost a diary just about what I did during the day, what, what my feelings were like. And it was a way of me getting to sleep. It was private. You know, I was one of those people who liked showing vulnerability. I think it was kind of instilled in me being a young bloke, but also being a young rugby player. You know, you're kind of taught to never show any weakness, which, of course, is a very dangerous thing, which... And I know, now know that, but I woke up one afternoon and one of my mates was going through all of my voice notes as they do, <laughs> my private voice notes. And he said, look, these, first of all, you're a weirdo. I was like, thanks, mate. <laughs> second of all, thanks, mate. Second of all, <laughs> second of all, you need to make some of this public because this could really help someone who's going through something similar one day. And eventually him and my wife persuaded me to do that. And what I thought was potentially help one or two people ended up really helping me. And within, you know, within a week, there was 
10,000 people reading this blog that I was putting out of just me being in hospital talking about the sort of reality of it. And then I found writing very therapeutic and I found I really enjoyed it, which I didn't know before. So I carried on. And then after I left hospital, probably two years after, I was approached by a couple of publishers to formulate my blog, basically, to show the day-by-day thought processes of someone going through a life-changing injury. But I said, no, like no one's going to want to read a book by me. I'm not an author. That's not something I could do. Um, but eventually, sort of 18 months ago, a wonderful lady called Bev James knew how to get to me because she's very clever. She was like... <laughs> I know Bev. Bev is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Bev's amazing. And of course, Bev was like, well, you could, um, this is going to help more people. Plus, you could give the proceeds all to the charity. And I was like, oh, no, I can't say no to that, can I? So yeah. so I set out to start writing this book. And, and it, you know, I obviously already had about 250,000 words worth of blog to draw on. But it was about putting the color in between, weaving the narrative through a very alien process to me but actually one that I thoroughly enjoyed. Quite nerve-wracking when you've sort of poured your heart and soul into something and it's something that's very personal and also your first book. But I'm happy with where it is. The feedback's been good so far, thank God. Hopefully it continues. But it is, I mean, it's mad to think. If you told me five years ago or when I was 20 that I'd one day have a book that I'd written, um, there's just no way I would have believed you. But as we've been saying, it's funny how the world turns, right? I'm ordering it right now. So it's out next week. That would be end of first week of August. Yeah, 5th of August. August, Maybe, maybe we can publish before that or around that time so that people know about it. That'd be amazing. But of course, because of our our years of flow or lives of flow that we've entered, I'm still going to be in Iceland thanks to my lovely flow life. And you know, <laughs> yeah. this conversation would have been America to the UK, but now we're uh, Costa Rica or... Dominican Republic. Yeah. yeah. So, so the question really is, you know, when I texted you and said, can I please delay our conversation? You were like so chill about it. It's like, absolutely. I have absolutely nothing to do with <laughs> you. <know>, anytime. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now you know why. Texting, yeah, it was like, you know, would, would after 5 p.m. UK work for you? Yep. Absolutely. No problem at all. It, it totally works. Yeah. One last question before we close, Ed. So how can people help your charity? I think it's an amazing cause. Yeah. So, I mean, just follow Millimeters to Mountains on any social media channels. You can go to millimeterstomountains.com to see how we help, what we've done so far, who we're helping at the moment, but also to look at our trips. So, we run adventures all over the world. We're in Iceland at the moment. We've been to Nepal. We go to the Alps every year. We do stuff in the UK as well. Actually looking to come over to uh, come over stateside soon too. So have a look at the trips and the challenges if it's something that appeals to you because we don't think that fundraising has to be a completely selfless act. I think the people that come on these trips, even if they're not the beneficiaries and they're fundraising for us, they take a huge amount away from it as well. So if it's something that you might find interesting, then just don't hesitate to get in touch. Okay, so I will say openly, I am so lucky. I'm so lucky we connected. I I talk to thousands of people. This is the nature of my life. But every now and then I come across someone who is so inspiring and so genuine. And I'm sorry to tell you this, but your injury happened for a reason. I believe you're on a path to change the world. So... I'm so grateful and so lucky to have met you, Ed. You're an amazing human being. Thank you for being my guest today.
Thank you, Mo. I really appreciate it. That is high praise indeed coming from you. So hopefully I can uh, I can deliver. But I, I completely agree with you. Things happen for a reason and we can't affect what happens to us in life. All we can do is affect how we react. So it's been a real pleasure to chat to you too. And uh, hopefully we can meet each other in person one day. I am absolutely planning to make that happen. I don't know where you will be in the world. You're so mobile. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I absolutely would love uh, for us to chat. And hopefully if there is anything I can do to further your cause, I think that would be an honor for me. And for all of you listening, you know how when I speak from the heart, I mean it totally. If you were here, you know, looking at Ed like I am, seeing his amazing positive energy, his amazing mindset, I think you would learn so much from the fact that your life is actually within your hands and, and that you can do something that makes your life better and the life of others better. I beg you to share this episode with friends and family and people who are going through a tough time, just to remember that uh, if you can wiggle your toe, that's actually good enough. That's something to be grateful for. And uh, yeah, maybe listen to this one more time. Just slow down and enjoy a bit of a break where you can reflect and flow. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.